So the recent baby boom that we've had here at St. Peter's, plus the mention in John's gospel of being born again, has me thinking a lot about when Julia and I decided to start our family. We had been married about eight years before having kids, and I'm pretty sure that Julia had always wanted to be a mom, even before we got married, but I was really afraid that I wouldn't have what it takes to be a good dad. Julia grew up with two younger siblings, and she had fond memories of helping her mom with childcare. And before having kids of her own, when our friends started having babies, Julia was frequently among the first to help coordinate baby showers or arrange meals for new parents or offer to help take care of the little ones. I'm sure some of our new St. Peter's families have heard of Julia's offer to sub in for childcare or for strategic baby holding. Now, while most people offer something like this as a courtesy, sort of like, yeah, I'd love to help you move, Julia really means it. She's always loved babies. I, on the other hand, was the youngest of three children, and my oldest sister was 12 years my senior. So I never had exposure to small children growing up. And I didn't even like other children when I was a child myself, preferring instead to be with adults or my older siblings. For me, the whole child rearing thing was really, really scary. I could count on one hand the number of babies I'd held before having our own. The floppy necks kind of freaked me out a little bit, and I had never changed a diaper before our own kids came around. Now, of course, when we found out that Julia was pregnant, we were both elated, and even though we were still young and poor, I was in grad school at the time, we were really excited to start our new family. The thing was, though, throughout Julia's pregnancy, I had this deep down secret fear that was really hard for me to talk about. More than just worries about floppy necks or dirty diapers or where is all the money gonna come from, I was worried about what was gonna happen to us, to Julia and me, when our baby arrived. It wasn't that I was worried about a loss of freedom, to go out to dinner or drinks with our friends. Uh, we were already kind of homebodies at this point in our marriage, so that was a moot point. Um, it had more to do about a fear of love, a fear about the nature of love. You see, I had this fear that love was a limited, non-renewable resource. Like, you were born with a certain amount of love inside of you, and if you gave it away to too many people, or you, maybe you spread it too thin, it might just completely run out. I think I must have picked up this idea from a church that I had been raised in. As a teenager in the 1990s, I was formed in the early days of the Christian purity culture. This was a time when churches of a particular denominational orientation were intensely involved in abstinence-only sex education. We were encouraged to court instead of date. High schoolers would give promise rings to their hoped-for future partners. And couples who saved their first kiss for the wedding day were praised as spiritual exemplars. I can remember being taught by some well-meaning youth workers that every time you kissed or dated someone, a piece of your soul would be broken off and it would be given to that person. Play the field and you might end up with no soul left to give to your future soul mate. In the world of purity culture, love was a scarce resource to be conserved, 
saved and only frugally expended. It's crazy how bad teaching like that can sink into you when you're young. But there I was in my mid-20s and my deep fear, the fear that I couldn't even speak aloud, was that when this child enters into our lives, I'm going to have less love to give to Julia, and Julia is going to have less love to give to me. Now, I learned just how profoundly wrong I was when I first held our babies in the hospital. With Naomi and then Eliza, at that first meeting of these new people, people who had been created out of our love for each other and were given to us as an expression of God's gift of love, it simply blew my mind. I liken this experience to the old Christmas cartoon, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. The Grinch is about to chuck a stolen toys down some mountain, and he hears a Christmas song rising up from Whoville in the valley below. And at the moment, the rhyme goes, in Whoville, they say, the Grinch's heart grew three sizes that day. Holding baby Naomi, and three years later, holding baby Eliza, I felt my own heart grow three sizes with love. I was never more relieved to be wrong about something in my life. Love wasn't a finite, non-renewable, or depletable resource. Instead, some, love is something that's infinite, inexhaustible, and flows from the very heart of God. So today is called Trinity Sunday, and it's the first Sunday of the season after. This is a long season that takes up most of the church's year. By thinking about the Trinity, because the doctrine of the Trinity is the capstone to the Christian story about God a story that we tell through the lectionary and the church calendar every year. And the story goes something like this. The God who made the universe does so out of a gift of love for the purpose of growing and expanding this love. Now, since love is only something that can happen when you have a choice, forced to love something or someone or anything, God gives human beings the capacity to choose love or to choose selfishness. Now, God wants God's creation to choose to love their neighbor and to choose to love God. Yet, as the stories of Scripture show us again and again, humans tend to love ourselves more than our neighbors and to love the things that God has made more than to love God and God's self. So, God's response to this has been a litany of interventions, which moves from the calling of Abraham to the one God is revealed to be the one true God to the choosing of Israel to be a nation set apart from other nations, to be an example of God's love to the world, to God's saving act of love and, love and liberation among Israel as he rescues them from slavery in Egypt, to the giving of law in Moses, which is an act of love to show the world how God wants people to live in harmony with one another, their world, and God. And all throughout the pro poetry and prophecy of the Hebrew Bible, not to mention all those signs that are within our hearts and our lives that point to the limitlessness of God's love, this is the story of God's love letter to humanity. And all of this culminates in the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of one person, Jesus of Nazareth. In Jesus, God shows us a distinctively and it shows up distinctively and decisively. So much so that Jesus' followers find in Jesus a person who is both truly human and truly divine. Jesus is in solidarity with his followers. He knew what it was like to be a person with free will who would be tempted to love the wrong things or to love the right things wrongly. 
Yet he was able to demonstrate this supreme inner strength to love rightly and to love abundantly. Jesus was also someone who was perfectly aligned with God. His very being radiated with such an intensity of God's love that it was impossible to distinguish Jesus from the God who sent him. That somehow the God of the universe and Jesus were found together in the same person. Someone to whom they could pray and offer worship. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection shows us that there's no limit to God's love. And the way that he taught us to love even those who hate and persecute us shows us that God's love is not just for those who are a select few, small family, God's interested in making all of humanity part of God's family. So in Jesus, God is saying to the world, it's never too late. All of you are loved. All of us can be God's children too. So what does it mean for us to be part of God's family? To share in this relationship of love that Jesus shares with his father? It means that we become animated by the very same spirit that animates Jesus too. The spirit that hovered over the creation before time began. The spirit that gave voice to prophets and poets in the ancient scriptures. The spirit who fills us with God's own inexhaustible love. The spirit who is given to those who are part of God's family draws us closer and closer to God and closer and closer to each other giving us the capacity to love generously, abundantly, and without limitation. So while the Trinity might seem like an abstract theological concept that is not means to be a follower of God, it's actually how Christians have learned to tell this big dramatic story of God's love for the world. God has shown up in human history and has revealed God's self to us through a threefold pattern of love. The love of the Father and that love that's then enlivened in our spirit. It's a love that goes out into the world to sustain, to redeem, and a love which draws the world back into the very life of God to be part of God's family. God loves the world in this way, that God gives God's only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. I want to suggest two reasons why I think it's so important for us as Christians to understand and appreciate and to think about God as Trinity. One has to do with how we think about God, and the other has, how, is, has to do with how we live in a God-shaped way, shaped in this way of God's love. Christians believe that God is Trinity and that God has always been Trinity. While Christians believe that God has revealed God's self as Trinity over a long period of time, which encompasses both the stories of the Bible as well as those stories told by the earliest Christians, we believe that even before there was a universe, God existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is why we say in the Nicene Creed that Jesus was eternally begotten of the Father. There was no time when Jesus was not God's Son. And similarly, when we affirm that the Spirit proceeds from the Son, there was never a time when the Spirit wasn't being sent out. So this means that before the universe, before time, before space, before humans, before giraffes, God wasn't just alone in heaven, hanging out and looking for something to do or someone to talk to. 
the images that some theologians give us to think about this inner Trinitarian life, the life before the universe began, sort of like the theologian's version of uh, before I met your mother. It's the Holy Spirit engaged, or the Holy Trinity rather, engaged in this constant exchange of love, originating from the Father, given to the Son, expressed through the Holy Spirit. The point is, before the universe existed, love existed within God. So I think back to the fears that I had as a, a early pre-parent about the limited and finite nature of love that Julia and I would share with each other and our kids. And I am so thankful that Naomi and Eliza taught me about the expansiveness of love. But I wish that I had grown up thinking about this in love in terms of inexhaustible terms, thinking about love as abundance and not scarcity. This isn't because I wish that I could have played the field more. There's a difference between desire and love, and that'll have to wait for another time. But so that I wouldn't be afraid of losing love. So that I wouldn't have been afraid of diluting love. So that I wouldn't have been so reluctant to share love. So I wonder what it would be like for us as Christians to really embrace this idea of God's love being limitless. Would we be more willing to show kindness to to strangers? Would we be more willing to love riskily with each other? Would we be less suspicious of our neighbors or those who are different than us? Would we be willing to take a risk and welcome a stranger into our lives? On this Trinity Sunday, the Trinity is inviting us to, to join in God's flow of love into the world, a love that reaches back through time and draws us back into God's eternity. Amen.